You are listening to This World of Humans, a science podcast focusing on the interface of biology and social science, coming to you from the podcast recording studio at John Jay College in New York City. For more information about today's topic, visit visionlearning.com slash T-W-O-H. Hello, and welcome to This World of Humans. I'm your host, Nathan Lentz. Your producer is Sam Anderson. And today we're going to talk about the relationship between hate crimes and suicide rates in LGBT youth. As most of us know, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender kids often suffer from bullying and various forms of psychological trauma. And this can lead to depression. It can lead to suicide. Now, psychologists uh, have studied this relationship on the level of the individual, uh, but the, the science of public health often looks at these kinds of questions on a larger scale, looking at populations of individuals and trying to identify the factors that contribute to or harm their health. Uh, we are very fortunate today to have with us Dr. Dustin Duncan, professor of population health at NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Duncan conducts a lot of research related to health and wellness, and he's often focused on specific subpopulations in urban environments. And so obviously his work is very important to us here in New York City, but also to other urban environments all around the world. So welcome, Dr. Duncan, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, Professor, you describe what you do as spatial epidemiology. What do you mean by that? Spatial epidemiology is the study of the spatial distribution and spatial determinants of health in human populations. And by space, we mean not space as in outer space, but space as in terms of neighborhoods. Okay, so you look at specific regions, neighborhoods, zip codes within a city? That's right. Well, the methodology that we, how we study neighborhoods kind of varies from study to study and dependent on data that's available, depending on the kind of research question that we have. But generally, yes, we look at how, where someone lives and works and socializes, and how that influence their health. And kind of what you're describing, uh, we focused on a lot of uh, populations that experience health disparities. So uh, sexual minorities, racial minorities, um, lower income individuals, etc. I see. And in this podcast, we talk a lot about research methods. So what is a common research method in your line of work? Where do you get your data? Or do you extract new data, look for archival data? Give me some of your sort of strategies to get information. Well, I can first tell listeners to, uh, if you're interested in the topic of Neighbors in Health, we have a book called Neighbors in Health, second edition by Oxford University Press, which came, it comes out in eight days, but you can pre-order it and it'll be your home in a day. Um, <laughs> but we focus on that, lots of questions and lots of topics about Neighbors in Health, including where we get data, how do we analyze it, and, and, and such. So uh, there are many different ways to get neighbor data. The easiest way is to get it from a survey. Mm-hmm. Um Another way to get data, like we did in the paper we're going to talk about, is getting it from uh, GIS data. So lots of times data is already geolocated or we know actually where these things are um, based on um, police laws or based on uh, um, taxes. So we, based, because of uh, taxes, we have to know where every tobacco retailer is. So if you're a tobacco retailer or tobacco researcher, you could instantly find out kind of you know where uh, tobacco retailers are. So that's um, like a, almost like a national registry or data set or... Exactly. Um, the newer ways we get data are from social media. So we've collected data from Twitter, we're doing some stuff on Instagram, et cetera. So one thing, one project that we have is we're looking at how neighborhood level uh, homophobia and racism uh, as uh, measured via Twitter is associated with health. Oh, I see. So you, it's a similar question to the one we're going to talk about today where you're looking at expressions of, of hate or bias or prejudice and how that will actually affect the individuals who live within that environment where hate is so common or less common. That's right. 
And at first, if you think, I never thought about suicide so much as a public health issue because I'm, a, I'm naive, I'm an outsider, but the first sentence of the paper we're going to talk about today is, suicide is the second leading cause of death among all youth worldwide. And that really floored me. I had no idea that it's the second lead of cause, leading cause of youth uh, deaths. So in a sense, this really is a public health issue. Is this a, a commonly studied question in the, in the world of public health? So yeah, mental health burdens is a is a major public health issue that's studied. Um, like uh, most topics in public health, we tend to focus on looking at individual level characteristics as it relates to health outcomes and health behaviors. So while there's been a lot of research on suicide that's focused on kind of individual level factors with uh, suicide. So for example, knowing that certain uh, minority subgroups may be more likely to exhibit uh, mental health burdens or certain other subpopulations, what we don't know in terms of uh, mental health, including suicide, among other uh, health-related behaviors and outcomes is the kind of larger macro social forces that shape you know, these health outcomes and health behaviors. Mm, I see. Okay, so uh, let's talk about the specific paper that we're here to discuss. Uh, this was published in the American Journal of Public Health, which is a major journal in the field, I know that much. Um, and the title of the paper is Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Hate Crimes and Suicidality Among a Population-Based Sample of Sexual Minority Adolescents in Boston. So there's a lot going on in that title, and we'll sort of, sort of break this down. What you're talking about is um, LGBT youth and the neighborhoods they live in and how common you see hate crimes specifically in those neighborhoods and whether that connects back to the rate of suicide. Do I have that right? That's exactly right, yeah. So you're, you're, you're going to have different data sets here and you're going to look for correlations. So let's, let's talk about the hate crimes data set first. So how did, you, how did you find out where hate crimes are happening in the Boston area? So what we did is uh, a colleague of mine who's professor and friend uh, who's professor at, at Columbia, at the time uh, we were both postdocs, and we, I lived in Boston at the time, and what we did is we basically just asked the Boston Police Department for hate crime data, LGBT-specific hate crime data, and they said no. And then essentially, over time, we developed a relationship, and we had some friends and colleagues who actually worked for the Boston Police Department, and we told them, highlight the importance of our research, and they essentially, eventually gave us hate crime data, which we cleaned and geocoded. Okay, so let me back up a second. So hate, a hate crime... Um, how, how do you classify a hate crime, first of all? So there is it specific uh, laws related, you know, specific in Massachusetts, or are you using a broader definition of hate crime? Hate crimes are bias-motivated crimes. It's when a perpetrator targets a victim because of his or her perceived uh, membership in a certain group. So, for example, a racial group or a sexual uh, orientation group. And there are many different types of hate crimes. It can involve things like harassment to things that are more extreme, like uh, assaults and threats. And we also know that sexual minorities are frequently the targets of hate crimes. So we essentially were given this hate crime data set from the Boston Police Department. Mm -hmm. So they already determined that it was a hate crime. Okay, so it's a record of all of the times someone was charged or convicted or it was uh, any time uh, uh, a hate crime was reported was reported whether or not it was solved or not wasn't your concern just that it happened or... that's right well and, and the location that it of course that it, that it that it occurred in and where it happened okay let's talk uh, about the survey then because that's sure. where you get the so you have the data from the police department about hate crimes and then you try to connect that to um, a survey that you ran looking for specifically suicidal ideation or attempted suicide that kind of thing tell me about that survey so there was a survey um that actually i conducted as part of my dissertation, but we focused on um, a a population-based sample, meaning a representative sample of uh, public school 
children uh, or adolescents, uh, high school students in Boston. Um, I think it was 22 schools. Um, and w within that data set, we asked lots of questions. It mainly focused on violence, actually, given the funder of the CDC at the time. Um, but we certainly had things about demographics, including sexual orientation. And we had things about um, uh, different mental health bur burdens, including uh, suicidality, okay. which we operationalized as suicide ideation and suicide attempt. Now, did you have, so when you set up to do this research, did you have a hypothesis? Oh, of course. And what was that? That hate crimes would be bad for LGBTU. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> you expected to find in the neighborhoods where there were more hate crimes reported per capita that there would be a higher level of suicidal ideation in the youth of that neighborhood. That's is, correct. Is and, that what you found? Yeah, exactly. So what we did is we conducted several tests, um, including an overall test and two tests for specificity. And what we found is we found that uh, suicidality was more likely to occur among sexual minority youth um, in neighborhoods with a greater prevalence of LGBT hate crimes. And we found that there was no association between LGBT hate crimes and suicidality among heterosexual youth. And there was no association between um, overall violent and property crimes, which are crimes that have nothing to do with LGBT, LGBT status and suicidality among the sexual minority youth, suggesting that it's specific to this exposure in this particular population. Right. Okay. So this is, this is a very important point, I think, for listeners to understand that um, when you have different, different uh, neighborhoods, so many different things can be uh, distinctive about the neighborhoods, but you looked for those the best you could. So you found that it wasn't just overall increase in violent crime, and it wasn't higher, higher suicide rates per se, it was specifically suicide rates among LGBT kids, right? Yeah, as, as related to the specific exposure, LGBT hate crimes. Okay. Um, now, did you find that LGBT youth in these neighborhoods also suffered from other health problems or did the survey not was not able to drill down to that level? We could have assessed that. I don't I don't think that we did in this particular study because we really weren't it's kind of uh, to back up. In public health, what we do is we first look at epidemiology or descriptive epidemiology, where we look at who has higher rates of what. And then the next thing is we determine why. Um, typically, we look at individual level reasons for things like you know, SES, so socioeconomic status, and race, ethnicity, I don't know, those kinds of things. And then the next step is really the broader contextual features. And then the next step is the implementation of some type of intervention. Um, we, in this study, we weren't really interested in looking at disparities or, or uh, were, uh, do LGBT youth you know, have multiple health conditions, just because a lot of studies have already shown that. Mm -hmm. It's been well documented that LGBT youth and LGBT adults, um, or broadly speaking, have suffered from a wide range of health conditions and you know, uh, beyond, of course, STIs, which is a commonly mm -hmm. studied thing. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to LGBT populations, and so how how able are you to to look into the data of the LGBT youth and look for even even subpopulations? Did you find that certain racial groups suffered more or less, or it was the LGBT factor was the one that was really the most critical? That's great. So the sample was something small, relatively small. Um, so it was 8.3% of uh, youth in the entire data set that reported a sexual minority orientation. Um, so given that small number, we just weren't able to look at subgroups. I see. And so with this particular study, it was more of a connection of two very different kind of data sets to see if this correlation worked out. Now, um, in a sense, that helps you worry a little bit less about uh, variance in your data set or... or the kind of uh, fa complicating factors that we talked about before, 
these are totally independently connected data sets. So if the if the um, LGBT factors in both data sets are the connecting variable, it gives you some confidence. Do I have, am I saying that right? Yeah, but I think it depends on the research question. So we could have looked at some neighborhood uh, perceived LGBT uh, uh, concern or neighborhood level homophobia within the data set, but it would answer a different question. For us, we were particularly interested in the this other data set uh, uh, that was uh, objective, partially because we wanted to uh, really inform policy. So if you just say, you know, there's uh, perceived level homophobia relates to all these bad things, uh, we feel like the policy implications of that may not be as strong as actually looking at actual police records of crime, um, which is what we did here. But to your to point that's made that when you have different data sets, you can overcome some uh, limitations of that data. So for example, if we analyzed, you know, a perceived neighbor characteristic and this perceived health outcome, which is suicide outcomes, Possibly there could be some directionality things there. So maybe people who are suicidal or suicidal are more likely to see their neighborhood as being more homophobic or more unsafe. Mm -hmm. um, so from that, we're able to overcome that limitation, which is called same source bias. Same source bias. Okay. So um, now in just a few years, this paper has racked up a lot of citations, hundreds of citations. So obviously it's gotten some attention in the field. Have you seen... Um, follow-up studies or even effects on policy or what, what's some of the fruits of this work on other researchers or even yourself? That's a great question. Um, no, really. Um, so we're following it up, this study up with additional studies. So a study right now where we have Twitter data on hate crime, oh, sorry, Twitter data on homophobia and racism as it relates to HIV among a group of MSM ministers of men here in New York City. Um, we are working with the police department right now to get a FOIL to get hate crime data um, here in New York City, uh, LGBT hate crime data in New York City, which we actually have. So, but, and when you say FOIL, that's a freedom of information request. Yeah. Specific, so, because they're supposed, essentially, they're not going to want to necessarily give you the data, so we have to basically tell them that they have to. Well, I'm wondering why they wouldn't. So if you're st trying to study a, a health issue of, that yeah. affects New Yorkers and you all you're asking for is crime data... <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's been a, a challenge uh, for us to get data. And, and actually, in particular, we have some hate crime data, but the next round of data that we want to get is the specific address. So right now, they gave us data for the police precinct level, but we, oh, I as you can imagine, that's a, a rather large uh, geographic unit right. that I don't think relates to health. So yeah, because okay, so there's different units. There, you know, you can start at state, city, neighborhood, but precinct is sort of neither of those, right? It's in between. True. So you don't use that very often. So there are many different neighbor definitions that one can study. The most simple is the perception. What do you perceive your neighborhood to be in terms of? If is it a block? Is it three blocks? Is it larger? Mm -hmm. um, the most that's which is a common way when you think about objective neighbor definitions historically studies including studies from the 1800s etc looked at administrative boundaries things like um uh arrondissement in in, in france to in states census tracts zip codes etc what's commonly done nowadays are uh, a buffer around a particular location like a home so right now we're at john jay we could think about a mile circle around this location. That could be defined as you, Professor Lentz, your work neighborhood. My work environment, okay. Um, increasingly, what's being done is looking at what's called a quote-unquote activity space, which are the place that people go. There are many different ways that one could assess activity space. Um, it could be by asking a questionnaire, asking about you know the typical locations you go to for things, and coming up with a neighborhood around that. 
or sub-neighborhoods around those places or using kind of GPS methodology, um, which is what our group in particular focuses on. We particularly define neighborhoods typically with GPS units, so basically where people go. Right, and you're able to... So I guess new technology has totally changed the way we do public health, it sounds like, at least completely in terms of spatial uh, studying. So you, you have studies where you ask for people to... Uh, give you their cell phone records or their they carry a GPS monitoring device how do you how do you keep track of this stuff so right now our GPS studies really are studies that um, we give them what's called a dedicated device meaning a device that the sole purpose is to collect GPS data or GPS GPS information but right now I'm kind of in the process of developing an application where we can uh, put this on someone's phone um, uh, and click your GPS data in that way um, which I think would be a little bit more uh, realistic in terms of how people move as opposed to ha- giving someone a device where they have to ca- uh, carry. But at the same time, we have to think that, you know, not everyone can afford a cell phone. And when people who have cell phones, not everyone has a smartphone. So, and, our, and we're kind of weighing the pros and cons of, you know, the different methods based on the research question that we can answer and the, the populations that we're particularly interested in. Right. And so to get back to this specific study, um, you weren't able to track individuals. You you looked at uh, surveys, and then you also looked at um, police records. So what would be the next step to try to either intervene to make things better, to improve the situation, or even to just study it better? What If you were back in Boston, I know you live in New York now, but let's say you were back in Boston and you were still consumed with this question, what's the next step? So I would say that one reason we did this study in this way, lots of specificity tests, was to show that it was a real association. It wasn't mm-hmm. spurious. So I do believe it's real. And beyond this paper, we have other papers that we show that LGBT hate crimes with this data set are associated with a wide range of poor health outcomes, things like bullying and uh, illicit drug use. Um, the next step will be to study interventions. And how, if, if we have interventions targeted at improving or reducing LGBT hate crimes in neighborhoods, would that relate to changes in uh, LGBT youth health, including mental health? So uh, there are lots of, uh, I'm not a criminologist, but there are lots of uh, interventions that one can conduct. One could be, I don't know, um, changing the landscape of neighborhoods. So in, in increasing uh, more lighting in neighborhoods, increased police presence in neighborhoods could be another um, uh, uh LGBT hate crime reduction intervention. And, you know, once after we implement that intervention, we can see pre-post, among other studies, pre-post changes in mental health conditions and other health behaviors among uh, sexual minority youth and see if it decreased. Um, I would say that would could be the, the change. Um, and then implementing them kind of more broadly, especially in neighborhoods that we know um, have higher LGBT hate crimes. And we can study that. Right, and that that's why I was so... Uh, let's say irritated that the police department wouldn't be more forthcoming with these data when um, if if we know that we can measure when and where people are being hurt, people are being harmed, why would we not want to have access to that information so we could do something? I'm not sure why they're they are reluctant and sometimes they give it to us to these neighbor these broad uh, scales like a police precinct, but it could be that the, the uh, that perhaps they're thinking that, you know, well, someone could have access to this and they can know where hate crimes are and that could be a, a, a neighbor they may be able to get away with conducting a hate crime. So I don't, I'm not sure their the psyche or, their, you know, their thought process with that. I assume um, they might have to scrub some of this data too and like to remove uh, information that they that's anonymous or uh, that kind of thing. So they maybe... uh, Scrubbing? I'm not sure what you mean, but they sent us like a, a relatively clean data set that's, you know, doesn't have people's names in it. Okay, so maybe like that. that's just labor involved in that, and they they just don't want to do it. 
I don't know. Okay. I talk about that too much. <laughs> okay. All right. No, because we, I mean, obviously at John Jay, we're, we work with police departments all the time. Oh, and this is not sense. the first time I've heard that, that stuff is not forthcoming when, when yeah. you want uh, information. That you, and, and also you had said a personal connection in that's the police department it, yeah. makes all the difference. And that's exactly what we find too. Yeah. Knowing someone that works in a, a particular place yeah. seems to open up the doors a lot. Completely. A lot more. But the, ultimately it should be public information. I mean, we're- I agree. This is our money and our, our communities. I agree. <laughs> um, so, okay. Well, I think that's all we have for now. Um, we will um, uh, talk more about these kinds of topics in future podcasts. But Dr. Duncan, thank you very much for appearing on our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. And for everyone listening at home, thank you. This has been another episode of This World of Humans. Have a great week. This has been another episode of This World of Humans, a podcast and science education initiative currently funded by John Jay College, the City University of New York, and Vision Learning. For science educators, don't forget to check out our website for a wealth of resources to help integrate this episode and its featured article into your science classroom. Find us at visionlearning.com slash T-W-O-H.